Let me tell you a story. On April 26, 2005, John Mason notified police that his fiancee was missing. Jennifer Wilbanks of Duluth, Georgia, didn't return from her evening jog that night. Uh, during the next few days, about 250 people searched for the missing woman, costing the city between $40,000 and $60,000. Police received a lot of leads, all of which were false. The FBI joined in the search, and Will Banks' relatives offered a $100,000 reward for her return. The story dominated national news. On April 29th, so three days later, Will Banks called Mason from a payphone, telling him that she had been kidnapped but was released. After she was found in New Mexico, Will Banks admitted that she was actually not kidnapped, but had run away due to pressures of her upcoming wedding. A number of lawsuits were filed, and to this day, Jennifer Wilbanks is known, best known as, anybody know? The runaway bride, okay? She's trying to run away. You get it. We're going to talk today about one of the most famous runaways, certainly in biblical history, um, this guy Jonah, and uh, we'll deal a little bit with uh, his, his issues here today uh, for the next four weeks, actually. Now, what I want to say to you is many of us have tried to run away. And it's interesting that, that the, the more I try to run from God, the more I have found, at least in my life, that I run into him, okay? Um, for me, Cody, where are you? Did I see you a minute ago? For me, I ran to Stillwater, and I ran into him there, thanks to guys like you. I don't know if you ever ran from God. Most of us have had a little foray into that. I want, listen to David's words from the 139th Psalm. Uh, they're very poignant for us. He talks about the futility of running away from God. Here's what he says. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar, you scrutinize my path and my lying down, you're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will will lay hold of me. David kind of expresses this thought that even when you try to run away from God, you're probably going to run into him. I, I think that is a, a, at least one fit synopsis for the story of the man Jonah who ran from God. Let me give you just a little bit of background on our study. By the way, that should sit, uh, there's a typo there. That should say one, Psalm 139 from which I read. Jonah's ministry is described in the book that bears his name. It's difficult to date, but, but uh, suffice it to say this, probably somewhere between 930 and 753 BC. There are two uh, events that happened around then. It's going to be prior to the reign of Jeroboam II because he prophesied against that. And uh, so sometime prior to that, 
The designation Israel in this context refers to the northern kingdom after the original 12 tribes of Israel were separated uh, by kind of, kind of civil unrest and uh, two tribes became the southern kingdom of Judah and the other 10 became the northern kingdom of, uh, that, that hung on to the name Israel and um, uh, their capital became um, Samaria. And um, we, we read about a lot of that in the New Testament. Now, this book, this part of the Old Testament is probably the best known of the 12 books in the section of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. We kind of tend to know Jonah's story a little better than some of the other minor prophets. One of the reasons, maybe, is because the, the story is told, uh, Jonah's story is told kind of in narrative form. It's very different in reading from the other 11. You and I can read the book of Jonah with a little more interest because it's like reading a novel. It's like reading a story, those four chapters. And uh, the rest of the minor prophets are not that way. Uh, they're more preaching and, and pro prophetic in nature. Now, we're going to begin at verse 7, but I want to give you a little bit of background in verse 6 if you want to just scan it a little bit. Jonah decided that uh, God had called him to, to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So you need to kind of put in your mind uh, a great um, looming enemy of the nation of Israel. God had said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them, preach to the Assyrians. He didn't want to do it. So when God said, go east, he went west. And he landed in a place called Joppa, which is on the Mediterranean coast, Book passage in a, um, a, a boat there, a ship there that was headed out into the Mediterranean. And um, that part of his trip was, oh, 60 miles or so from uh, from Jonah's home, if that's where, in fact, he was. If he was at home when he, he left to go to Joppa, uh, uh, his home was a place called Gath Hefer, and uh, that would have been about 60 miles from, um, from Joppa. Now, Jonah finds a ship. It's headed to Tarshish. Tarshish, uh, the location of that historically is kind of an unknown. We think it might be in um, uh, modern-day Sardinia or uh, somewhere, an island just west of Italy, but we're not really sure. Jonah was trying to do something that was impossible then, as it is now. He was trying to hide from God. His trip to Joppa um, made him tired, so he paid his fare. He checked in into the hold of the ship and went to sleep. While he was sleeping, a mighty storm uh, erupted on the Mediterranean. The sailors reacted in the standard ways to the situation. They lightened the ship by throwing a lot of the cargo overboard. And, um, and each man began to pray to his own God. And that tells you a little bit about who these guys are. Uh, and the master of the ship goes to awaken Jonah so that he can join them in this prayer meeting. And that's kind of where we, where we find Jonah in verse 7 of chapter 1. Now, by the way, if you want a little, um, a, a little uh, heads up, we'll be in chapter 2 next week. So we're going to start with 7 this week. Steve, if you're over there, would you read 7, 8, and 9? Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. 
They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Okay, now, um, Steve, before you pass the mic off, can I get you to go to Proverbs 16.33? We'll get to there in a minute. Now, here's what happens. They're having this little bit of a prayer meeting. The captain of the ship is called. Everybody's kind of calling on their own God. And um, they figure that we're in the middle of this terrible storm because somebody has irritated a God, small g. One of you guys has ticked off his God and he's got something to do with the weather and something to do with the sea. And so Jonah is involved in this situation. So they do what any, you know, faithful, um, dependable person do would do. In the, this case, they throw dice to see which one of us has ticked off his God, all right? They cast lots, that's the term. If you read, I put a couple of references here. If you read about it in 1 Samuel 14, it's literally, uh, that's another place in the Bible that, that faithful people used it. Um, uh, in this particular case, um, Jonathan, uh, Saul, King Saul's son, had eaten some honey, uh, contrary to the, uh, the um, king's edict, and, um, and they knew somebody had done that, and they were going to punish them, but nobody was coming forward, so they, they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonathan. Okay, interesting. interesting. Now, so they're going to throw dice here. They're going to cast lots and uh, find out which guy ticked off his God. Now, Steve... This is an interesting thing. The Bible addresses casting lots and the, this whole principle. This was the kind of thing they did. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They really believed this. Okay? That if they put some dice in a Yahtzee cup, well, you got to be of a certain age to know that reference. Okay? They put some dice in a Yahtzee cup, and poured them out on the table, that God controlled that. Well, in this case, he actually did. The lot falls to our friend Jonah. And uh, so they, they acknowledge here, or they, or they um, uh, begin to uh, discover here that God does actually control the results of this. Uh, God's in control of a lot of things. So what you and I need to know here, it's clear who controls the outcome of the story and certainly of this little test of the deity. Now, so uh, Jonah is picked. Um, I thought of some of us who, at, uh, at the university who, who have uh, training or doing some work in, uh, in, in uh, Giant Worldwide. Evidently, the captain of this boat was uh, a guardian because he begins to interrogate Jonah. Uh, what about this? 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 Okay, you got to ask, in, in rapid fire, he asks five questions. They ask five questions of Jonah. You can read about them in verse eight. The sailors kind of mount a, a, an interrogation, which really is kind of an unnecessary interrogation in light of, of what happens later and in light certainly of them having cast lots and found that this was the guilty guy. Uh, but listen to, the, listen to the questions that are asked here in verse 8, okay? 
Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? We already kind of know. What's your occupation? What do you do for a living? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Now, those last three questions are designed to say, you know, that they believe that there were regional gods over, over particular areas. So they were, they were looking for, if you're from here, then you've probably ticked off this God. Or if you're from here, you've ticked off this God over here. And so they ask him all these questions about his background. But only he kind of knew the answer. The lot, has, the lot had fallen on him. And so they figure this guy has ticked off his God, who is your God, is kind of what they're working on. So they mount this kind of interrogation. Now, Jonah's first words recorded, if you read most of the minor prophets, they're going to preach through the whole book. In this four-chapter book, Jonah says very little, and his first words are recorded in, in verse 9. What are they? I'm a Hebrew. What does that mean? It means... He's a descendant of Abraham. It means in, in tighter context, that was a term that was used of Israelites some. I put a couple of references, Jeremiah 34, 14, 1 Samuel 4, 9, where um, uh, the word Hebrew is used to identify the children of God. So his first spoken words are a testimony, a true one, but they're ironic. He says, I'm a Hebrew. Ironic's what goes in your blank there. He, um, and, and the, the next thing he does, he, he identifies himself with Hebrew, then I believe, and some commentators believe, that he takes a little bit of a jab at the gods, little g, of the, other, of the sailors, okay? I'm a Hebrew, look at verse 10, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord God. Maybe your translation says, I worship the Lord God who made the heavens and the earth. The sea, it says what it says, the sea and the dry land. So kind of the idea here is he's taking a jab at their fictitious gods. He's telling the truth. And he basically says, my God has the power to do this. Because he made the land he made the sea, he made weather. My God has the power to do this. Now, do you find that testimony as ironic as I do? Here's a guy running from the God that he now affirms. I, I, I think that's incredibly ironic. Um, it's a self-indictment. My God could do this kind of thing. And it's probably him. Because he is the God over things like land and sea and sky. Jonah knows what he's talking about. But his testimony is not consistent with his action. Now surely you've never been in that place or your testimony and your action are two different things. I believe in God. He says, I fear, I worship God. 
Don't you know that these sailors, and by the way, there's, there's an incredible story here. These, don't you know these sailors are scratching it's in the, well, if, if this is true, why did you tick him off? Okay, so let's go on with the story a little bit. Steve, you still got the mic over there. Read 10 and 11. Here's their concerns. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? I gotta be real careful with what I'm getting ready to say. I just posed the question, how many of the storms of our lives are caused by our own decisions? They asked him, what in the world have you done? This storm is that bad. You must be a really bad guy. What in the world have you done? Now, what I've got to be really careful about is that don't we often make, I encounter this nearly every day, folks. Don't we often make the connection that the calamity that's in my life is kind of God's fault? Okay? And the truth is, the truth is, there are lots of calamities that, that are, take place in my life that just, and this is not going to help your faith a whole lot, but it's just, I need to speak the truth. There are lots of bad things that happen in my life that just happen, despite a God who loves you and who is powerful. There are just lots of things in my life that just happen, but there's a whole other class of things that can happen in my life that have a cause, and the cause is not God, it's me. Marlene, you and I talked about the, the outcome, the, kind of the outcomes of your brother were tied to some other things that happened really early in life. There's some of the calamities that happened in my life that I can't blame God for. God, although was in charge of this storm and could certainly end it and eventually does, was not at fault. I often blame God for trouble that I have caused. If I eat a half a gallon of ice cream at 9.30 at night, and then stand on the scale the next morning, I can't say, Lord, what have you done? I do do that occasionally, by the way. I just wanted you to know. What have you done, they're asking and there is some things here. Verse 11, he's going to kind of confess. Uh, well, he's not going to confess yet, but they know as the result of kind of the throwing of the dice, they know he's kind of confessed already. I know my God. He's powerful enough to do this. The storm is Jonah's fault, they're going to say. But the, and they know that something must be done, but it must be done really carefully. It's got to be done really, really carefully. Because what, what's going to have to happen here is, is going to be kind of hard. It's a hard decision to make. And if they're realizing that, that, God, that Jonah's God has caused this calamity, he's brought the storm on based on uh, Jonah's disobedience. What the sailors are thinking is, uh, we don't want to make this guy's God any matter. We're going to have to handle this carefully. Okay, now let's go 
to the next section here. Cindy, would you mind to pick up the mic and read 12 through 17? Can you do that? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you. O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Important little detail there at the end that we'll get into. Now, somebody over there, or pass the mic along, I need to eventually get to Matthew 8, uh, verse 27, and then Matthew 12, verse 39 and 40. Cindy, either, either do that yourself or assign it or something, okay? Matthew 8, 27, and Matthew, um, uh, what did I say? Uh, 12, 39, and 40. Now let's take it apart. Jonah here, after they've kind of given him the third degree, uh, begins to step up and talk about this a little bit. And he says, you know what? My God, can, my, the God who, who uh, troubled the sea can also calm it. And he said, if you'll just pick me up and throw me in the sea, uh, it'll take care of all that. Now, there's about four components to what he says here in verse 12. He, and by the way, what you need to put in your blank there is Jonah is, uh, Jonah is honest uh, to his own peril, okay? Can you imagine saying to somebody in a violent storm, pick me up and throw me in the drink? That's what he says. Now, the picking me up is not the hard part. Throwing him in the sea is the hard part. Remember, if, you, if you've ever been on a ship at sea that's tossing, okay, to approach the edge of the deck is a perilous thing. All right? So even if they can pick him up and get him over there, if they get close enough to toss him overboard, um, they're fearful that they might fall overboard. So uh, plus, they, they just kind of want to be sure they're doing the right thing. So he's honest to his own peril here. He says four things. Pick me up, throw me into the sea, which would mean taking their lives in, in their own hands somewhat, okay? The boat is tossing. He says, number three, the sea will come if you do that. And number four, you notice he says this. This is really interesting. It's my fault. Isn't it true that the beginning of any trip back home any course correction, whether midlife or whatever, begins with really saying, you know what, it's my fault. At least Jonah's being honest here. Um, I'm running from God. This deal is my fault. Throw me in the drink. So, but the sailors are honorable. Put that word in your next blank in verse 13. The sailors are, are, are honorable. Uh, they're thinking, I think we can track a little bit with their thinking. Their thinking is a little bit along the lines of, um, well, okay, we don't want to kill this guy. Throwing him overboard is going to kill him. Um, so let's see if we, can, um, if we can row the boat back to shore. Now, they were probably doing, 
based on that comment, they were probably doing what sailors sometimes called, called island hopping, which meant they go out a ways, but not too far from shore, and they kind of follow the shoreline in case they get in some kind of trouble so they can book it back to shore. They were probably doing something like that, and they're thinking, maybe we can row back to Joppa, or maybe we can row to somewhere uh, north of there, which is kind of the direction they were going, north and uh, west. But what was the problem with that thought? Huh? Well, it's interesting. The boat was pitching in such a way that they couldn't get the oars in the water. They tried furiously to, to row out of the storm, and that just wasn't going to happen. They tried to fix things by their own effort. Do you ever have a five-year-old come to you and they've tried to um, fix the knot in their sneakers, in the shoelaces in their sneakers? And they've tried to fix it before they brought it to you? You ever that happen to you? A, a, a child will come to you uh, after they've tried to fix the knot in their laces. And you want to say, and maybe you do say, I wish you'd have brought that to me before you started messing with it. Because now I'm going to have to cut the laces out. I'm going to have to, and we're going to have to start all over. Isn't it interesting that these men, and, and they were honorable in their thoughts here. Let's see if we can get this boat back to shore. Do anything short of having to throw this guy in the sea. But the truth is, I may be whistling row, row, row your boat. But if it's my idea, life is not a dream, okay? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Okay, the next line, life is but a dream, okay? If I'm rowing on my own, life ain't a dream, okay? And that's what they're trying to pull off, and it didn't work. Honorable, but it didn't work. Verse 14 records the first prayer in the whole story of Jonah. The first prayer. What's interesting about it? Look at verse 14. <laughs> you're, you're dead on track, Stella. The one who should be praying, leading the prayer meeting, is so far mute and the guys who now have are flirting with belief in God at least belief in what's going on right now they begin to pray they do several things here it's kind of interesting the greatest example of faith on this boat is demonstrated by pagans they begin to believe and they demonstrate that belief by prayer that's kind of an interesting thing they do. A first prayer recorded in Jonah's story is, is, is prayed by pagans. Now, look at verse 15. I'm going to read it. 
How does this happen? So they picked up Jonah, reluctantly, picked him up. They approached uh, cautiously the edge of the deck and they threw him into the sea. And what happened? The sea stopped its raging. Cindy, I need you to read, if you would please, Matthew 8, 27. When I read this again this morning, I could not, and I can't read it now. It affects me so profoundly. The disciples find themselves in a similar storm, in a smaller boat. Jesus, with a word, calms the storm. Read verse 27 from Matthew 8, would you please? The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. He's the same kind of man that's part of the Trinity that's identified in Jonah 1 who with one act, the sea immediately calms, the storm immediately stops. God can end the storm whenever he wants to. Jesus demonstrated it in Matthew 8. And it was so dramatic. It wasn't just, oh, you know, the rain started stopping and, you know, or watching, if you're watching the derby yesterday, it was raining off and on, it was really muddy and it'd stop and it'd start again, you know. None of that kind of business. Rain, wind, waves all stopped dramatically in an instant. Because finally somebody obeyed. <laughs> even though it was pagans who did it. The result is because of who is the master of the sea. Now, verse 16 is probably my favorite verse in this whole thing. As a result of what God has done here, and they recognize it, okay? As a result of what God has done, uh, the sailors begin to kind of... Uh, demonstrate what I would call a simple faith. All right? Let me read verse 16 again. Then the men, talking about the sailors here, feared the Lord greatly. Now that's a good word, fear. They respected, they honored him, they worshiped him. They feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So, they fear him. They demonstrated that fear by giving. Catch that? They demonstrated the respect and honor of this all-powerful God by, by giving. They sacrificed. And then they made some vows. I wonder what kind of vows you suppose they made. Do what? Yeah, probably to serve him. Lord, if, if God, this is obviously you. I want to worship you from now on. Uh, uh, this is what I would call, Hubert, foxhole faith. Okay? Heard the term? 
I've read a lot about it lately, frankly. I'm reading a lot of stuff about the World War II, and um, I'm reading about guys who made vows in a foxhole. These guys are making foxhole vows, which often uh, men don't live up to later. It would be wonderful to know the outcome of this. These pagan sailors and what happened to them. Um, but, but they made this vow. Is this a permanent vow? We don't know. Or is it just foxhole faith? We don't know. But it was a simple kind of faith. And by the way, doesn't it begin there? I don't have to know. Uh, that theology matters. I believe that with all my heart. But I don't know, have to know everything about God in order to place my trust in him initially. In fact, it might be that the best kind of prayer, the best kind of simple faith is in saying, Lord, I don't understand what I'm going through. I don't understand all there is to know about you, but I figured you've got something to say about my life. So with all I have, I'm gonna cast myself on all I understand of you. That's kind of where it begins. It's simple, childlike. It's a beginning. And so theirs was the beginning. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed. He appointed. God picked out a fish. I love that. He picked a fish. Jim Hampton, you here today? I'm not sure God appoints those fish that end up on the end of your line. But okay. But maybe they did. Maybe he does. God appointed a fish. You. Appointed a fish. A great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And we'll go on from there. A great fish is arranged for Jonah's burial. Okay. This is, Jonah is supposed to drown. He doesn't in fact drown. Cindy, would you read Matthew 12, verse 39 and 40? Jesus is going to reference this as the sign of Jonah. Matthew 29, I'm sorry, 12, 39 and 40. Would you please? He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the man, son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Interesting. Who's making that connection? The master of the sea is saying, you're going to get a sign. It'll be the sign of Jonah. There's a burial that's going to take place, but it's not going to last. Jonah is buried here. Uh, Kay Yosting, are you here? Oh, there you are. You know what I love about, about your text to me yesterday? I love the fact that somebody was reading ahead. I just think it's great. And she was doing some study in her Bible on this chapter and, and heard this story. I'm going to read the story that you sent me yesterday about um, whether or not a guy can be, can be swallowed by a fish. And by the way, there's a lot. You can, you can read lots of stuff on Jonah's fish or Jonah's whale, and you'll find all kinds of stuff about it. Was it a shark? Was it a great white shark? Was it, in fact, a whale? Was it something else? In fact, if you put Jonah's fish in there, it's going to bring up a restaurant called Jonah's Fish and Grits somewhere in Georgia, all right? 
In February 1891, the whaling ship, the Star of the East, was in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands when the lookout sighted a large sperm whale three miles away. Two boats were lowered, and in short time, one of the harpooners was able to spear the creature. The second boat also attacked the whale, but was upset by a lash of its tail, causing the crew to fall into the sea. By the way, I want to see a whale from a long ways away. One of them drowned, but the other, James Bartley, simply disappeared without a trace. After the whale was killed, the crew set to work with the axes and spades to remove the blubber. They worked all day and into the night. The next day, they at attached tackle to the stomach in order to hoist it to the deck. In so doing, the sailors were startled by something in the stomach which gave spasmodic signs of life. Inside was found the missing sailor, doubled up, unconscious. He was laid on the deck, treated by a bath of seawater which soon revived him. At the end of the third week, he had entirely recovered from the shock and resumed his uh, duties on the ship. Can you imagine this guy renamed himself Jonah after that? Could it happen? Yep. There are lots of stories about where it's happened, which I don't want, that, I don't, I don't want to sign up for that tour of duty, but it, it could have happened. Uh, by the way, the place where Jonah was spit up, if it was ancient Phoenicia, which is possible, they worshipped, guess what? The great fish god. Can you imagine? You're taking a walk on the beach and a representation of your god spits a preacher up? I'm listening to this guy. Okay. God provided a storm and a fish. Now, my question to you, and I've had to ask it of myself this week, am I in any way guilty of what some call the Jonah syndrome? I, it's not that I don't know what God wants me to do. In fact, I know it really well. But I do 180 and run as far the other way as I can from what I know God wants me to do. Am I guilty of placing myself in what might be known as the Jonah syndrome? Could it be that at least partially the storm in my life currently, currently raging is a result of my disobedience? That's a question I've got to ask myself. There are storms that aren't my own making. But there are some that are. I want you to Google a song, all right? It's not a spiritual song. It's called, Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. Everybody's telling me you're not a kid at 33. You fool around, you waste your life. It talks about, he also talks about, in, in perfect rhyme scheme, losing his wife. Isn't it interesting? Charlie's singing the blues, but they're blues of his own making. If Jonah is playing a harmonica in the belly of a whale, it's blues of his own doing. Where's your storm coming from? 
here's the beauty of it. Regardless if it's my making or some other thing, God controls the wind and the waves. My master, Cindy, that you read about. My master. I can answer the question, what kind of man is this? He's the kind that controls my storm and can guide me safely through it. We'll be in chapter two next week. We'll uh, eat sardines <laughs> and, and deal with being in a fish for three days, okay? See ya. <laughs>